This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Hello, and welcome to a special episode of Global Tennessee. I'm Patrick Ryan, your host at the Tennessee World Affairs Council office on beautiful Belmont University campus. Today, we'll be talking about the implications, health and otherwise, of the coronavirus pandemic that has spread rapidly across China and across the globe. With me are Dr. Mary Margaret Phil, medical epidemiologist from the Tennessee Department of Health, and John Scanapieco, an attorney from Baker Donaldson of Nashville, where he is chair of the global business team and a specialist on China. I'd like to uh, welcome both of you, John and uh, Dr. Phil. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you, Pat. We're, uh, we're glad to have you here to, on uh, short notice to talk about this uh, unfolding uh, global uh, crisis and the implications on uh, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, to call it a global health emergency, it, it happened almost overnight, and that gets uh, everyone's attention and has people turning to uh, communicable disease specialists like you, Dr. Phil. So let's get started with some uh, background context. Uh, we'd uh, do uh, do well for our listeners to describe exactly what we're talking about here in terms of uh, what's referred to as the novel coronavirus or uh, 2019-NCOV. Uh, give us a background. Where did it start? What, uh, what should we know about it? Sure. So in December of 2019, Chinese authorities detected an outbreak of what looked to be a a new type of pneumonia, and they ultimately identified this novel or new coronavirus. So I I think it's important to have a little bit of context about what a coronavirus is. These are not new pathogens. This is a type of virus that causes disease in animals and humans. There are currently seven different types that are known to infect people, four that we actually see circulating seasonally in the United States every year. They have very awkward letter number combination names, so I won't bore you with them. Um, But it's not uncommon for them to cause... So that's the common flu that we all get the flu shot for? Yeah, it's a little different than the common flu. So the flu is caused by influenza, but these are sort of a cousin-type virus to those. They cause the common cold or, in some people, maybe more serious infection, but very common circulate every year during cold and flu season. We also know about SARS, which was found in 2002, 2003. That's the severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus, also identified in China. There was a pretty quick and rapid epidemic that was across parts of the globe and pretty quickly extinguished. And then the uh, the sixth is MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus that was found in Saudi Arabia, I believe, in 2012, and still, um, you know, is present in a in a low-level degree in the Arabian Peninsula. So we still see a, a low number of cases and some deaths occasionally. It sort of smolders. For a time, part they the thought world. that was related to camels? Yeah, there actually is evidence of transmission from camels to people. So many of these viruses have animal um, intermediate hosts that the virus can live in and be transmitted to people. Um, but that's not the primary mode of transmission that we're seeing in China now. So this new coronavirus, which unfortunately doesn't have a name yet <laughs> besides novel coronavirus, so that's what we keep calling it. 
um, like I said, was was found in December of 2019, first in Wuhan City, which is a, a pretty large city of about 11 million people in Hubei province in central China. And then since then, you know, the disease has been found more widespread throughout, certainly throughout that province, throughout China, and then popping up in other countries around the world. So the uh, this, the start place was Wuhan, and, and there's reports about how it actually was transmitted from a, a food market. Yeah, so interestingly, it sounds like clinicians on the front line who in public health we rely on heavily to be really our eyes and ears when there might be something new or novel or strange happening, they noticed that they had a cluster of patients with pneumonia that didn't test positive for any of the normal pathogens that all reported going to this seafood and animal market in Wuhan City. Now, some of the studies that have been done as this has all evolved and is unfolding, show that perhaps this virus was actually circulating in that community before those initial patients and before that seafood and animal market. Um, so I, you know, I don't know right now that it's really exactly clear where it started. I think those will be questions best answered on the back end of all of this once we know exactly how this will unfold. Sure. And what's the impact on somebody who catches this particular virus? Yeah, so that's also a great question and something that we're still learning about. So it seems that people at least the people that are being diagnosed right now often have fever and what we call lower respiratory symptoms. So they have cough or shortness of breath. They have evidence of pneumonia or a a lung infection on their chest x-ray. It looks like about 20% of people require more intensive hospitalization, like intensive care unit level medical care. I think though it's important to know that um, there is undoubtedly a maybe even a large proportion of people that have very mild illness or maybe even asymptomatic illness who are infected that we're not really capturing right now in a lot of our surveillance and and testing for this disease. So we're really capturing the sicker people. And that's why it's hard to estimate things like the mortality rate and things like that, because we we just don't know what that denominator lower number is to really make those accurate assessments. And the numbers are are changing Daily, I, I won't hourly. say I won't say exponentially, <laughs> but didn't didn't the uh, the deaths and the the infections double in about a three day period? Yeah, they went up pretty quickly. So I think we're sitting at over twenty eight thousand cases now, and um, and over five hundred and fifty deaths. You know, it's hard to read too much into how quickly those numbers go up because right. one of the good things that we're seeing is that more hospitals, more labs, not just in China, but internationally can now test for this virus. So as we look for it more, we're probably going to find more infections. And and those numbers are on the day of recording this podcast, February 6th. So uh, refer to your nearest Google machine to uh, to keep up with what's what's happening in terms of the uh, the numbers. The uh, health, health impact in China, you said this started in uh, Ube province. Uh, China is a highly mobile society, especially this time of year, with the New Year celebration, um, it's it's I think said to be uh, John. You can probably set me straight. What the largest mass migration at any one point on the planet? Uh, yeah, this is one of the golden holidays where everyone will return to where they're from. And if you understand with China, uh, most of the uh, so that's 1.3 billion people. Yep. Yeah. So most of the investment has been along that east coast. But a lot of the employees that work in those cities and towns and communities have come from other parts of China, and this is really their one time of year uh, to go home. And it's a major family uh, holiday. One of my colleagues actually um, was in Memphis visiting her family, but went home to China to visit her mom even during this outbreak um, because it's that important to be with family. So, uh, Dr. Phil, uh, 
a mobile society like that with this, and, and we're still not sure how infectious it is, um, other than the fact I think people are talking about a 14-day um, incubation period, and you may not you may be contagious before demonstrating symptoms. Yeah, so you know I think right now the window that we're operating within for incubation period for monitoring travelers or people who may have been exposed to someone that's ill is 14 days. Although it looks like for most people, the incubation period or the time from when they were exposed to when they become sick is probably more like five days. So that 14 days is really just to be overly cautious and conservative. Um, You know, we're still learning more about how transmissible this virus is. So you might have seen news reports or read tweets that talk about a figure called r naught. That's basically how many people can become ill from one sick person. So if I'm ill with the virus, how many other people will I infect? Um, And it, you know, it ranges for different viruses. So for example, measles virus is one of the most contagious viruses that exists. And it's r naught is like 12 to 18. So for people that are susceptible, one infected person can infect that many others. For this, is this the letter R? And a subscript zero. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. R not. It's it's a it's a technical epi term that typically isn't reported in the lay press, but sure. for whatever reason in this outbreak, people have been really excited to talk about it. Um, for this virus, it looks like the R naught is probably somewhere between one and a half and three. So one ill person will infect one and a half to three others. Our goal in the public health world for containment is trying to get that number below one. And that's when we really are successful at being able to contain a virus from spreading in a community or outside of a community. So I think you know scientists are analyzing all of the available data to really try to understand all of that as best they can. I think those are also numbers and information that will evolve over time. It does look like the virus has probably spread mostly like how other respiratory viruses are through droplets that spread when a sick person coughs or sneezes. Um, There have certainly been questions raised about whether or not you can spread this virus before you're symptomatic. And I don't know that, um, I think the jury's still out on that. You know, for, um, for influenza, we see that people can often infect others about a day before they become symptomatic. For other respiratory viruses, though, that's less common. So there was a fairly landmark uh, New England Journal paper that come out came out describing asymptomatic transmission. However, it turns out that those authors actually didn't interview the person that was supposedly not sick before they were transmitting to others. Um, and in fact, she, she did have some symptoms. Um, so, you know, I think I would caution everyone that you know, there's a lot of headlines and excitement. And in the scientific world, we really try to look at the body of evidence and not just one paper that's reporting sure. the first thing. We all want to be first in, in the big high-profile journals, and I understand that. But especially in emerging and evolving situations like this, it's important to pause and look at all the information that's out there to answer some of those hard questions. Right. We're going to talk a little bit further uh, about the WHO and, and responding here in the States uh, a little later. Uh, but let's Let's talk about the spread. We we do have cases in about 24 countries, the U.S. among them. Right. Um, what, what kind of feel do you have for the numbers and the implications? Yeah, so, you know, we're sitting at 12 cases in the United States. Uh, that's in, I believe, five or six states, California, Washington, Illinois, Arizona, Massachusetts, and then Wisconsin was announced just last night as having the 12th case. 
Uh, you know, almost all of those are people that have traveled directly from Hubei province. There are a couple of um, instances of human-to-human transmission in the United States where a returning traveler infected someone when they came home. However, in both of those instances, it was like a spouse, so someone that they were in very close contact with for a prolonged period of time while they were ill. That's not surprising, given that we know that if I have a cold, I'm probably going to get my partner sick with a cold as well. Um, so, you know, I think the efforts from CDC and state and local health departments has really been focused on containment. And that's, you know, still the goal that everyone's working towards. Um, and, you know, we've seen seen those numbers hold where they are for now. I think it certainly is possible that things could change. Now, the though. large numbers in China, you talked about human-to-human transmission in the case here. Uh, are those human-to-human transmissions or are those people who are somehow connected with the animal world? I think the vast majority of that is human-to-human transmission. Okay. Um, you know, they're, the role that an animal reservoir could play in this is still unclear, but I don't think that accounts for and the, the majority. And the epicenter is still Wuhan. Yeah, still Hubei province still accounts for almost 70% of all the cases in China. So I think close to 17,000 of those 28,000 are just in Hubei province. So in the U.S., what uh, what's the forecast for continued spread? I mean, it's hard to say. And I think public health authorities have been pretty transparent about that. I think folks are optimistic and, and taking all of the appropriate steps to try to contain spread as much as we can. But we realize, and especially as we learn more about this virus and its characteristics and certain elements that make it easier or harder to contain, that that may or may not be possible. And so we just have to be open and honest about that as the situation evolves. So it's a continuing story to to follow. Agreed. Uh, Just a reminder, we're the uh, Tennessee World Affairs Council. This is the Global Tennessee Podcast. We're talking today with Dr. Mary Margaret Phil, a medical epidemiologist from the Tennessee Department of Health, and John Scanapieco. From Baker Donaldson, he's chair of the global business team and a specialist on China. Uh, let's uh, let's dive, uh, John, a little bit deeper into uh, the reactions to the spread of coronavirus uh, uh, and uh, bring you into the discussion here. You're an expert on U.S.-China commercial uh, activities, uh, guiding American business trade and investment there, and helping Chinese colleagues or investments here. Um, What's uh, what's? Uh, let me also mention that you've uh, authored with some of your colleagues an insightful paper that we will uh, link to on our podcast notes, uh, talking about the implications of uh, the coronavirus. That uh, provides uh, pretty much uh, what you need to know uh, about the the virus and the implications for for business. It's not just a health issue. There's there's a lot of business concerns and. Uh, uh, we're, we appreciate you here to guide us through that. Tell us about the impact. Uh, to companies that uh, American companies that that you wrote about it that have employees in China, uh, that's got to be a significant number. Yes, there are a significant number of U.S. companies that have uh, overseas operations in China, and right now it's it's you know it's very difficult for them because of course as we mentioned earlier, many of those employees have all gone home to their various parts of China, and in some most cases they're still restricted to. Uh, to where they are from. So there are travel restrictions now in place in uh, most of China, preventing some of these employees from getting home. Uh, They have extended the Chinese New Year in some areas through February 9th, and then in um, other areas through February 14th. So it'll be interesting to see kind of then what happens uh, once these, quote, travel restrictions have been lifted, whether these employees will actually return. Because of course, there's going to be some fear, like there is anywhere when you have something like this. Do I really want to go back 
to this big environment where there have been maybe cases of sure. the coronavirus. So they may not come back. So what you have then is the, the impact, can I even operate, is one. Two, the Chinese government, you have to understand one of the founding principles really of that country is, is, is the protection of the employees and their rights because, of course, they believe that through stability and employment, they can then create stability within the, the country and the government because I'll have a job, I'll have income, and I can have a place to live, and I can have food and some other uh, necessities. So most of the laws and regulations are geared towards protecting employees. So right now, for example, uh, you are prohibited from firing anyone who has the disease or suspects they may have the disease. Um, you are also being encouraged to not lay off workers, um, even if there is uh, a slowdown or, or you cannot operate your business. Um, and there are rules now in place in many of the larger economic uh, uh, centers in China that if you have to suspend operations within a pay cycle, that you continue to pay um, at least certain amounts that are within the, you know, each, each place has its own regulation there, but usually it's about 80% of the minimum uh, wage uh, in, that, in that city. And we're also now seeing in some, again, the larger areas, is, even with there's not let me like a large number of cases so say for example from uh, Ube province but like in Beijing or Shanghai there are restrictions on uh, travel from say your place of residence outside in the community you have to get a special permit and, and other restrictions so it's making it very difficult to do business so what we're advising our uh, clients that have operations in China well we, we saw one report that uh, in Beijing which is uh, far removed from from Ube province, that households were permitted, they were given tickets to go shopping twice a week? Yes. So what they're trying to do is, as you, as you know, China is it's very densely populated. Right. Um, and so uh, they're trying to prevent people from massing in these, I guess, more community areas. Sure. Um, and and, and that, that may be a question for Dr. Phil. You know, one of the things by restricting everybody and keeping them in their house, if someone happens to be ill or have symptoms, you know, now you've got a house full of, of people. And I don't know if that maybe even contributes to the, you know, to the spread. Yeah, I mean, I think the measures that have been put in place in China are fairly unprecedented. We, we don't have a lot of experience in public health with uh massive transportation lockdowns, or dare I say, you know, we've seen the use quarantine used in, in a lot of, uh, you know, news articles and posts. And in SARS, there was, were some similar actions taken, even in Canada, actually, they, they sort of shut down Toronto for a period of time because there was spread in, in Ottawa. But um, there's, it's unclear, I think, how effective those measures will be if they will lead to more spread in some communities because of, of, of close contact or um, or if, if they will put more vulnerable populations at risk. There's also conversation that there were many people that actually fled Wuhan City before those measures went into effect. And so there's always concerns about, uh, you know, certain folks have perhaps the means to, to move outside of those restrictions and others don't and, and the disparities there. And, and I think it's, it's really hard to predict how effective those measures will be in containing the disease versus the sort of big economic implications that they have. But so, so recognizing now the in, potential impact to businesses uh, and the restrictions now that the government 
either at the, the, the national level, provincial level, or even at the city level, have imposed on employers to not fire or lay off. The government now is stepping up. And over, since we wrote our paper, just really in the last week and a half, the government, at, at, again, at the national level and at the, and at the state level, they have instituted a variety of programs from um, holidays on paying tax, um, on paying unemployment insurance, uh, medical insurance, you know, all of these things, these social welfare benefits that employers in China are required to pay. Again, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's critical. So they're, they're trying their best to help alleviate some of the financial impact. The banks um, have been told to free up um, you know, billions and billions of dollars that they can give for loans. They've been encouraged and in some cases instructed not to call loans and to forgive late payments. So, again, you know... Well, the government uh, called for injecting billions into the economy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, recognizing the impact. So, you know, because the government sees itself as, you know, that uh, all-knowing and, and helping hand. So they want to make sure that these businesses stay afloat so they can employ people because that, again, allows provides the stability they believe that will allow them to continue in, you know, in, in government. And this uh, this is happening on uh, President Xi Jinping's watch, and yes. he doesn't want to come out looking like this is mishandled. Right. right. So if you're an empo- so if you have employees in China, what we're advising is have your managers on the ground, uh, keep in touch with the local labor authority labor authorities in your community, because these these regs these regulations and these rules are coming out fairly quickly and haphazardly. So you really need to keep up with what's going on, and at the same time, also monitor these various programs because, of course, that can also be beneficial to you and what you need to do in terms of reporting and and, 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 and filing taxes sure. and, and all the rest. Well, let's talk about uh, Americans who are over there. There's uh, been flights from Wuhan yes. of Americans who are now being quarantined on military bases in California. Um, what uh, What's the situation with people who are not necessarily near those areas that uh, these these evacuation flights are being organized the uh, uh, the number of flights that have been canceled delta american united british air all are uh, canceling flights in and out of china so what what's uh, going on with the employees of these companies so, so a week and a half ago, again, before this week, you've seen a lot of change, I think, in how our government and other governments and these airlines are all viewing this this, this pandemic. So we were advising our clients that unless their uh, expat employees were essential to the operation, uh, and even then really to reconsider and bring everybody home, because what we were advising is, you know, there's a potential that they could be then restricted and prevented from coming home. So, for example, there aren't any airlines that will fly you home. Uh, you know, so if, if all the U.S. carriers are now canceling their flights, it becomes very difficult to get home. My understanding is now that the U.S. government has imposed some restrictions. So uh, U.S. citizens, um, if they, uh, I think, are coming from Ubay province, there's a mandatory, I think, quarantine for right. 14 days. And if you're not showing, or if you come from some other part of China and not symptomatic, that I think they're screening and then there is a... I guess self-imposed or a recommendation that you self-quarantine for 14 days, um, just to, to be careful. But if you're a non-U.S. citizen uh, and you've been to China within the last 14 days of your arrival on, uh, to the U.S., you can be barred from entry. Uh, Dr. Phil, help, help us understand about these quarantines. So if somebody comes back and they arrive at uh, Chicago or wherever, um, 
what happens. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we've, we've also heard a, a report about a cruise ship in Japan with 3,000 passengers on board, and they're being quarantined in individual cabins. So, you know, those, for anybody who's been on a cruise ship, those are not very big spaces. And you could imagine after a couple of days getting a little stir crazy and people are delivering meals in hazmat suits and sure it's 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 a tough situation yeah so um so you're so you're right so you know on on friday the 31st i guess it was the white house issued a proclamation which outlined some of these new regulations around quarantine and then uh, foreign nationals returning to the united states so right now all flights from china the few that there are are being funneled into 11 airports in the united states and there are relationships between Customs and Border Patrol and CDC officials who are present at all of those airports to do various levels of screening for those incoming passengers. So you're absolutely right. For people coming from Ube province, they are are mandated to a 14-day quarantine. Most of that is happening at sometimes at military bases near these airports. Uh, in some jurisdictions, they're being put up in hotels or other, other accommodations. To, and of course, you know, there's uh, steps to ensure that their basic needs and, and um, necessities are cared for. For people returning from elsewhere in mainland China that are healthy, we basically are, are um, if they make it through the, the screening process, they're allowed to go back to their home, home jurisdiction. And at that point, then that information is handed off to us at the state or local level, and we follow up with those folks and are recommending a 14-day period of what we're calling restricted movement with public health supervision um, or with, with public health monitoring. And so that sort of depends on on where they've been and what they've been doing. But um, we're basically asking people to stay home from work, stay home from school, stay home to the degree that they can. So are, are any of these people coming to Nashville? Um, you know... Uh, the, there certainly could be people that come to Tennessee. Theoretically, you could get off a plane, go through the public health service. Sure, and I think another important point to highlight not is not wanting that, to alarm anybody. No, no, no. Yeah, and there's and there's no need to alarm anyone. I think there undoubtedly will be people returning to Tennessee. Um, you know, I, I do think it's also important to highlight that there are other people who maybe have been in China in the last 14 days, but then went through Europe or Canada or someplace else, and, and they aren't necessarily going to be picked up by the screening that the federal government is doing. Um, and so, you know, we're hearing from many of our colleagues in other states that, you know, those folks um, are contacting public health proactively themselves. They want to make sure that they're doing the right thing, keeping their yeah. communities safe. They they want to um, be careful and, and, and help um, however they can to make sure. sure that there isn't fear or unnecessary risk. Well, and, and Dr. Phil was kind enough to speak with us two, almost two weeks ago when we were uh, looking at advise, what do we advise our clients? Because again, we have Chinese clients. Uh, many of their employees had gone home and now we're coming back. And so the question was, well, do you just automatically, I mean, again, I'm not a doctor. If someone looks sick, I'm sending them to the emergency room. And I think, Dr. Phil, you gave us some really good advice to say, well, that's the last place you really want to send them because there's, you know, a compromised population there. And so her suggestion was, you know, to contact you or, you know, your state health department because they can then arrange for testing in a manner that will minimize or mitigate any risk uh, in the event that they are actually uh, uh, have that have the illness. Yeah, I mean, we always want to make sure that people get whatever health care they need. Um, but if we're able to, to do that in a controlled way where we can, um, you know, limit potential transmission, make sure that doctors and nurses are aware that someone's coming, then we can often, um, you know, limit and virtually eliminate the risk to other people that might be there if we can do it with a little advance notice. 
Yeah, because again, some of our employees were just concerned that our employers were concerned that, you know, okay, my Chinese employee has come back. I don't know if they have a symptom or not, so I'm going to just send them or I'm going to quarantine them. And again, what we're advising is based on the recommendations we received from the state of Tennessee that if symptomatic, then do some things. But otherwise, to the extent maybe that some of those folks could work from home, great. If not, then allow them to, you know, work, work at, you know, at the facility. Well, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Mary Margaret Phil, a medical epidemiologist from the state of Tennessee, and John Scanapieco from Baker Donaldson, an expert on uh, China and uh, head of the Glo- Baker Donaldson Global Biz- Business Team. Uh, this is the Global Tennessee Podcast. Uh, we're going to come back and talk some more about the medical and other uh, implications of the pandemic, the uh, coronavirus. Uh, so uh, stay with us. Uh, we'll have a, a brief break, and then we'll be right back. You're listening to Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council. We invite you to share your thoughts with us in email, info at tnwac.org. You can subscribe to the World Affairs Council newsletter on the website, tnwac.org. And you can like us on Facebook at Tennessee WAC, as well as follow us on Twitter at tnwac. Don't forget to tell your friends about Global Tennessee and the World Affairs Council. This podcast and other educational programs from the World Affairs Council are supported by you and our sponsors. Are you interested in supporting global affairs awareness in your community? Visit tnwac.org for more information. We're back with Dr. Mary Margaret Phil from the Department of Health of the state of Tennessee. She's a medical epidemiologist, and we're also with John Scanapieco, an attorney for Baker Donaldson in Nashville, where he is chair of the global business team and a specialist on China. This is the Global Tennessee podcast, and we're talking today about the pandemic uh, called the Novel uh, Novel Coronavirus, uh, which started in uh, Wuhan, China, uh, in December. It was first noticed, and we've talked a little bit about the background and context of uh, both the medical implications and some of the business implications. John, uh, we we left off. We were talking uh, with you about the business implications, and and specifically, let's let's talk about the implications for companies that manufacture or, or purchase goods in China. Uh, what should they be complicating, uh, contemplating as this rolls out? Sure. Uh, as we discussed earlier, there's a lot of travel restrictions in place. Uh, and so as a result, employees cannot get back to their facilities in China uh, that maybe make your good or your product or your component. And so this should have, likely will have a major impact on global supply chains, also with the travel restrictions. So logistics, uh, trucks, rail, um, so your goods may be manufactured, but they can't get to the port. And you're even seeing some delays um, with, uh, you know, I would not have thought this on uh, with seagoing vessels, but uh, the workers don't want to get on the, vo- the boats because they're working in close quarters. Um, so again, you may see some delays there. So what we're advising our clients to do is to reach out to their suppliers and begin to engage in almost ongoing daily communication with their suppliers to really ascertain what is most likely uh, going to happen to their 
their their orders. Will they be made on time? What impact on delivery? And again, engaging in that conversation uh, and then offering some flexibility with your suppliers, if you can, is a great way to, to strengthen that relationship and also to have your supplier work with you to try to do its best to meet whatever requirements it has. We're also advising our clients to review their contracts so they really do know what is required under their contract in terms of delivery, delivery schedules, and then what their rights or remedies may be in the event of failed delivery or delayed delivery, which are likely to be the two major uh, impacts, delayed delivery or failed delivery. And at the same time, be prepared for force majeure claims by their Chinese suppliers. Uh, this was something that was common uh, after the SARS epidemic. Force majeure is so act, for, act of God. Well, yeah, act of God, riots, embargoes. I mean, it, it can be a whole host of things. So, for example, in some of my more recent contracts, I've even imposed, I put in a- Things out of your control. Government-imposed tariffs. Yeah, so you can you can specify what it can be, but typically it's exactly that. How, however, though, the Chinese courts- and we'll, we'll try to keep the legalese. Yeah, I know. That's why, that's why I just kind of said it and moved on. Moved on. Um, but uh, the Chinese courts and the arbitration bodies after SARS, they interpreted those provisions, whether they specified an epidemic like this or a pandemic like this or not, they interpreted the force majeure concept to include a pandemic like SARS. And so they excused performance in some cases outright, and in others they delayed the performance without penalty. Um, and so we're likely to see uh, the the same here. I, I doubt if you file, a, a, even if you have the right to do so, if you file a claim in China in court or in, with an arbitration body, I believe it's very unlikely that you would prevail on that action simply because a major state interest, obviously, is keeping that economy going, keeping that supplier in business, yeah. as we've already discussed. And so one thing with Chinese courts, they will follow the contract. Uh, it's my experience, a well-drafted contract. Um, but to the extent, though, that doesn't maybe violate a major state interest, right? So the state interest always trumps the contract and everything else. So I think that's an issue that you need to be prepared um, to, um, to deal with. Now, if you manufacture in China and you're unable to meet delivery and demands, there is a process. It's a fairly detailed process, but the China Council on Promotion of International Trade it will issue uh, certificates of force majeure that you can then take and use, and there's some other steps involved. It's actually fairly rigorous, but you can go through that process and maybe have your own performance uh, either excused or delayed. So this is where you better get a lawyer. Yes. I mean, this is where a lawyer, I mean, I, not to plug what we do, but that's what we do. Sure. Is, is help people navigate these issues through their contracts and, and help them more efficiently resolve their, you know, their disputes. Great. Um, again, we're talking about the, uh, Dr. Phil, is, is it a pandemic? What's the difference between a pandemic and an epidemic? Yeah. So, you know, I think uh, there are probably differing views on what constitutes a pandemic. I think, the World Health Organization and others have not come out and officially declared this a pandemic yet. But the WHO has called it a global health emergency, is that Correct. right? Correct, yeah. Okay. So um, I think it was the 30th uh, of January, they, they, the emergency committee of the World Health Organization met and declared this a public health um, emergency of international concern. So that with it, you know, brings... Uh, 
some some sort of standard approaches basically indicates that states and and other bodies um, you know could be at risk and that there's a need for a coordinated international response rather than each group sort of you know fighting their own fire trying to work together uh, more cohesively so so, so w, who who is the who yeah so the world health organization is uh, is is really the public health arm of the United Nations um, you know they uh, they deal with all kinds of issues around the world related to health, not just communicable disease, but chronic disease, malnutrition, uh, you know, unstable um, societies and governments, war, famine, and on and on and on, and, and really just try to take the public health uh, view um, for the population and protect and help however they can. So are they the organization that provides the seal of approval to call it a pandemic? You know, I, I actually don't know that they're required to do that. I think we often look to them for those sort of... Uh, but we decisions. can't just look look at what's going on and yeah. And so, call so it I, I will say, you know, to the the sort of general consensus of what constitutes a pandemic is is seeing sustained human to human transmission in multiple countries, which we're really not seeing right now. So we see sustained human to human transmission in all over China. Um, there's some suggestion now in some other countries in Southeast Asia that there's more of that, but I think outside of of mainland China. The country with the most cases is, I think, maybe now in Japan, which still has less than 50. So, you know, the the drop off is fairly severe. Um, and so I think once we start seeing, if we start seeing that more sustained human to human spread, we um, we might more than be more likely to call it a pandemic. OK. And in the U.S., the uh, United States is calling it a health emergency. Yeah, so that decision came out at the same time as the proclamation on Friday from the White House around the the foreign nationals and and quarantine decisions, Um, you know, declaring it a public health emergency in the U.S., I think a big reason for that was um, around this, the concept of diagnostic capacity. So right now, the CDC is the only place where we can do testing for this virus. Uh, When a public health emergency is in effect, the FDA is allowed to issue an an, uh, an EUA basically allowing CDC to disseminate their test to state public health laboratories without each state public health lab having to go through quite a severe uh, hoop jumping process to get approval and validation. So that was a, a big part of that. That federal declaration of an emergency can also bring with it, um, you know, they can approach Congress and ask for more funds. Um, there can be some money tied to that. But I I, um, I think it was probably more proactive than anything, anticipating what what needs there might be in the U.S. Uh, for our public health infrastructure. So the main uh, agency in the U.S. government responsible for reacting to this is the CDC. Correct. And uh, there is such a thing called the U.S. Public Health Service. There is. There is. So it's, it's a little different. So U.S. Public Health Service uh, is a, you know, non-armed branch of the military, really, that um, they're commissioned employees. They work in many federal agencies. Correct. Yeah, the Surgeon General is the face of the U.S. Public Health Service. So many Public Health Service employees work at CDC, but they also work in... in other federal agencies, they work in the Indian Health Service and uh, Department of Justice and the okay. prison system and things like that. So they're scattered all over. Okay. But the CDC is the main responding body. And, and they have about, I think they said on their most recent call, about 800 staff working on this. So about 200 of those are in the field, either at airports, at the quarantine stations, or in some of the jurisdictions where they've had confirmed cases. And the rest are all at headquarters in Atlanta. Okay. Tennessee. Uh, Department of Health, you are in the Communicable and Environmental Disease and Emergency Preparedness Department? Division, yeah. Division. Uh, 
and you're a medical epidemiologist. Tell That's us, right. Tell us what Tennessee is doing to gear up for this. Yeah, so Tennessee has been, I think, really proactive around this. So really since early January, we've been watching the situation. We have um, activated our state health um, operations center. We have a team of people that is working on this most of the time, every day. Um, we've issued several um, formal communication uh, messages to the healthcare community in Tennessee. We have a, a list of about 18,000 or so licensed clinicians in the state. So we've pushed out messages to them to make them aware, to raise awareness about doing travel screening on triage for people coming in with respiratory illnesses to clinics or emergency rooms or other places. We've done a lot of communication with stakeholders, um, established a webpage with a lot of resources. A lot of our work right now is really preparing for the what if, what if we do get a confirmed case and how would we respond to that? And I think we've positioned ourselves well to have the resources we need. Um, you know, we we deal with outbreaks of disease all the time. Um, you know, we deal with outbreaks of measles and hepatitis A and, um, you know, the H1N1 pandemic and dealt with Ebola. And this is not a, a new a new rodeo for us. So I think our, our guys are ready and prepared. And I think we've positioned ourselves well to respond if we do get cases. We're talking about coronavirus, but uh, do you have a Department of Health pitch about uh, vaccinations? Of course, always. <laughs> Let's hear it. Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we certainly recommend everyone get all of their vaccines as, as recommended by their, their health care provider. But this time of year, you know, we are seeing a second sort of spike in influenza, which is, you know, problematic for many reasons, but uh, the seasonal flu. Correct. Yeah. Seasonal flu. So we saw a, a big spike before the holidays. It looked like things were going to trend down and now we're seeing it tick back up again. So um, definitely always get your flu shot. Um, there's there's uh, quite a bit of benefit. Um, it might not keep you from getting the flu, but it will keep you out of the hospital and can help prevent the flu from killing you. John, do you have your flu shot? Oh, I get it. Like, I got it in October. <laughs> Good for you. you. Know, I got it in October. I mean, I I had to threaten one of my sons though, um, and I I took him to Publix because they gave you ten dollars, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that was uh, that's what I needed. That's all he needed. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, John, uh, apart from the human toll of the pandemic, uh, which you know we we still have yet to see what uh, what the implications of that will be. Uh, what are the implications for global trade? China, as we know, is the second largest economy in the world and supplies. Finished goods and imported uh, important parts to every point on the planet. Um, it's much more important piece in the global economy now than during the SARS epidemic when uh, there was a, a big hit in their GDP. Uh, but back then, 15, 18, 20 years ago, they were not the global supply chain leader that uh, that they are now. So what's what's the short and long-term damage being done to the global economy. We'll start with China and then talk about uh, the global economy and, and the trickle-down effect on the U.S. economy. Based on the numbers I've seen recently, they're predicting uh, for first quarter, second quarter of this calendar year, uh, maybe only 4%, 4.5% growth, which for China is, you know, it's... Catastrophic. Based, yeah, right, right. Because, I mean, even 6% is... Well, when they went from 9 to right. 7, the, the people were... Right. So, so you're going to see a significant impact there. And of course, to your point, with China being at really the epicenter of so many supply chains, you're going to start seeing it's just think of the, the calm pond and you throwing that rock in the middle of the pond and just watching it ripple out. And you're starting to see 
impacts now. Um, I just read uh, a Hyundai plant in Korea had to close because one of the parts that they they received from China, they just can't get anymore, and that plant is closed in China. And as you know, in the auto industry in particular, uh, they sole source or single source a lot of those parts. So once it goes, it goes. And it's not like just other widgets where I can then just go down the street and find an alternative supplier. It usually takes uh, you know, 12 months, 18 months to reauthorize a new supplier in that, you know, for the auto OEMs. So that could be catastrophic, and I think you're going to start seeing more of that. Um, and also the areas that we talked about earlier that are either, I'll say, restricted, either because they've extended Chinese New Year or there's other travel restrictions, that represents 70% of China's GDP. So I think you're going to see a pretty big hit there in the short run. And I think you're going to start seeing it in the United States. I mean, you're going to start seeing, like, you know, a lot of the retailers, for example, uh, that we all know, I mean, they'll have 70, 80% of their supply comes from China. And so, you know, there's going to be shortages in, in several things. I mean, I, again, we were talking earlier about uh, so many uh, medical supplies mm-hmm. are manufactured in China. And so you may start seeing some shortages. And we're not talking about some I don't think the real life-saving things, but the you know the tongue depressors and the masks and all of these low-end um, uh, medical supplies. Sure. I was actually trying to reach out for one of our contacts was trying to find a production of surgical masks for Hubei province. And I reached out to some of our contacts, some of the larger purchasing groups, and they're already saying, well, you know, they're, they're pretty short, um, just based on normal usage. Um, and so... Um, uh, so I think you're going to start seeing some of that, and I think you'll start seeing it in different industries that are more reliant on a China supply chain in the short run. In the long run, uh, for example, with the U.S.-China uh, phase one deal, China has committed to purchase $200 billion of certain of our products. Mm-hmm. Um, and Heavy on the ag. Heavy on the ag, but there's a lot of other industries that, that, that we're going to benefit. Um, and... You know, that will definitely take a hit this year because, of course, uh, there was already some wiggle room in that based on demand. Well, demand is going to be non-existent or very little relative uh, uh, to what it would have been but for this virus and the impact on the economy. So it's likely China will be asking the U.S. for flexibility, you know, there. Um, uh, And I think... uh, you know, just in terms of trade in general, you're going to see some some real uh, slowdowns around. I think around the world. You know, you were talking about uh, the maritime industry and sailors not wanting to go to China because of the risk. Yeah. But China, uh, it's a phenomenal amount of commodities that that get shipped in coal from Australia and iron ore and aluminum and yeah. So energy and, prices. Uh, yeah. So for oil, oil yeah. and gas and. Yeah, so energy prices have already slumped. I think uh, it directly in 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 response to the decreased the demand. Global energy price. Yes. Well, even in like the United States, for example, oil right. slipped below fifty dollars a barrel. A, yeah, it's, it's a global market. Yeah, I mean, because they they're one of, they're the largest user of uh, oil, of uh, natural gas, uh, coal. Um, so yeah, you're going to start seeing the real impact around, and also even with agricultural products uh, around the world as well. Because, you know, China is under-resourced, and so right. um, they ha- they rely heavily on their ability to sell widgets or goods around the globe to generate foreign currencies by which then they can buy the resources they need to keep the lights on. And so that this 
this stoppage, we'll say, or this pause in the Chinese economy now will have more significant impact than it would have 15 years ago, just simply because of the global connectedness that we have and the extended supply chains. So, you know, you'll start also seeing uh, more uh, uh, non-Chinese companies or even Chinese companies start to diversify their supply chains out of China into maybe Southeast Asia, Mexico, or other parts of the world, which, again, will have a longer-lasting impact to China because, of course, they'll be moving that production out of China. So let's, let's uh, wrap, wrap up the, uh, the non-medical side of this with just a general question on the impact to China, not in the business sector, but uh, politically and the stability. Uh, you know, the, the Chinese Communist Party is concerned about stability in the country, and this is certainly rocking uh, that uh, situation. Yes, because what you're seeing is you're seeing a lot of um, complaints that were on the various social media um, chat rooms and other platforms uh, that this is just like SARS, that you can't trust the government, the numbers are wrong, the government's not responding right. And I think there were some improvements, and Dr. Phil may know better, some improvements from SARS, the SARS epidemic, but at the same time, there was so much fear put in a lot of the local healthcare professionals and those responsible that then they hesitated or paused enough that it, it became a real problem, or they weren't reporting true numbers. So that now has really made the populace upset. And so you started to see just tremendous amounts of criticism of the Chinese government that you just don't normally see. Well, so in, in response now, the Chinese government is really cracking down and censoring uh, a lot of these websites and actually um, uh, threatening uh, prison and other uh, sanctions for those who um, post uh, what I'll call, you know, what they against deem Against the public interest. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So I think you're going to start seeing, you'll start seeing more and more reports of that. But like anything else, uh, you know, I think the Chinese government will get their handle on it. And it will slowly return. And well, they certainly have the latitude to do certain things yes. that would not be, uh, maybe not unthinkable in the United States, but certainly wouldn't be the first, third, first, second, or third order. Yeah, but but, but be careful with that, though, because, again, I think sometimes we look at China and what China does through our U.S. glasses, but China is not the U.S., and so when you look at it through the U.S. glasses, it gets distorted. Uh, you have to look at it at, as China. I mean, it's a different culture. They have different—I um, mean, it's a long, long thousands of years of history and how they do things, and, and you know, just so it's not a right or wrong. It's just a different No, no, way. Not, not to say one is right, one is wrong, right. but when you lock down 11 million people— yeah. Uh, you're you're not going to lock down Houston, Texas, like that. No, because again, I think culturally it's just a different. Right. It's just different, um, and so we're not, you know in China you wait for the government to tell you what to do. Here in the United States, a lot of times we we petition the government for relief, or in a lot of times the government looks to us to provide information as to what's next, what should I regulate, how should I regulate it. And so it's just a different, it's a very different environment. But, but again, this is a hit um, to China and to the Communist Party, I, I believe. And, you know, but again, I, I don't think it's something that they won't recover from. But, you know, maybe do you look at it as these are just little chips out of the armor and everyone weakens it a little bit more, a little bit more? Um, you know, only time will tell yeah. um, on that. But you know, oh no, no, not to suggest that we're near yeah. some. But chi China is China will, back, yeah, but China will recover, 
And, uh, and I think, uh, you know, Dr. Phil will probably echo this, you know, just use common sense. I mean, we don't need to run around uh, in hazmat suits and, and, and all the rest. Right. It is a serious issue, um, but just exercise common sense and, like, wash your hands, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think, right? Yeah, I think that's one of the most important messages. I mean, I you know, there's been a, a run on surgical masks that people are buying off of Amazon and Home Depot. And, oh, here and, in the U.S.? And, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, it's hard. You can't, you can't get, them get them in the them. U.S. Yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, the first point is that surgical masks are really meant for source control for the ill person to wear. You know, if I'm coughing and hacking, if I have a mask blocking my face, I can't spray germs in the air to the same degree. Okay. They're not meant to protect non-ill people from ill people. That's not really how they're intended. So, um, so you know, I think, uh, you know, we... That's strongly counter, believe that you counterintuitive know, to mo- to most people think they put the mask on and they're protected. Yeah, that's not really what they're meant for. Okay. Um, for you know, especially in these types of situations. Sure. Um, you know, obviously healthcare providers use them as precautions and in, in various procedures and other settings. But um, but yeah, this as as we we say, you know, our our eyes are also a mucous membrane where you can have materials splashed or germs spray into, and so you know, unless people are going to start walking around with goggles as well, which you know I I doubt. Um, it's it's really meant to to block someone who's ill from from spreading yeah, and, germs. And so everything I've been told, it was wash your hands and stop touching your face. Yeah, those because, are so important. I mean that's and that that is more effective than wearing uh, masks. And and you know, like I said, don't be afraid of doing business with China. Uh, it will be back, and it's you know still open for business and 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 all the rest. But you have to now start thinking about right. the risks and mitigating your business risks. Sure. Clearly, uh, clearly, China is uh, is going to recover from this at, at some point, and, and uh, it's a significant issue. But as you say, China will be back. Um, uh, Doctor Phil, let me ask you: We're we're running out of time here, but I, I have a, a question about the uh, human interest uh, dynamic of of these kinds of things. Uh, there was a report about uh, Doctor Li uh, Wenliang who was in uh, Wuhan, and uh, I think the press is calling him a whistleblower, but he had uh, tipped uh, some colleagues about this uh, virus that was going around. And uh, today, uh, February 6th, the day we're recording this, it's been reported that he passed away, that that he had contracted uh, coronavirus. Uh, I don't know if you can get into this, any of the details about that. It's mostly press reports. But uh, t- reflect a little bit, if you can. You talked about the clinical uh, professionals who were involved at uh, the ground level. But uh, what's what's the impact on medical professionals who have to deal with challenges like this? Yeah, I mean, I think these are always times that I, I'm, you know, proud to be a clinician, you know, so proud of many of my clinician and healthcare colleagues. I mean, we really see that the frontline workers are, I mean, these folks are working tremendous hours. I mean, they are so dedicated to patient care and taking care of people the very best they can in often stressful and impossible situations in an event that, you know, we're still learning about and we don't know what the risk could be to them or, um, you know, how, how, you know, they might be, uh, you know, potentially exposed to something in the care of people. But we see again and again, whether it's coronavirus or, you know, an Ebola, we saw, I think, over 500 healthcare workers die um, taking care of patients during that epidemic. And, um, you know, I, I think it's just important to pause and, and really be grateful and uh, and and just impressed by uh, this the sort of core principles that dictate clinicians around the world, no matter where you are. That's, which that's is incredible. To take care 500, of 500 in the Over Ebola 500. outbreak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, we had many Americans who went to West Africa 
And there was the case of the uh, the doctor who contracted Ebola who was evacuated to Atlanta. Yeah, that, there were several physicians that contracted Ebola that were there working with relief organizations or other groups to try to um, just help care for people. And, you know, I think it's always we can get caught up in a lot of the, the stress and panic and fear in these events, but I think it's also important to step back and look at the healthcare community, look at the global public health community and see that, you know, these are the folks that are really running toward the fire um, when, when these events happen. And I right. think we should all express gratitude for what they do. Well, big hat tip to uh, you and your colleagues in the, uh, the medical. That wasn't meant to be self-promotional. No, 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 no. <laughs> so, no we're, we're glad to have you here um, talking to us in a fairly sterile environment. Uh, but we acknowledge uh, the dedication and humanitarian uh, nature of the work being done in, in the medical community. Uh, John, any any last comments that uh, you want to make? Yeah, I would also suggest that um, because of the potential for fear and panic to kind of take over good judgment, that um, uh, from the business community anyway, you know, keep up and, and, and monitor what the state's putting out or what the CDC is putting out. They put out great information on their websites and then use that information to educate your employees. Um, because again, it's, 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 I'll say ignorance is, I think, a lot of times the main cause of some of that fear or panic. Because on, while the internet is a great tool, it can also be a, a real disaster. Um, and then just exercise common sense. So if employees are asking for accommodation not to go to, I mean, I'm supposed to go to Southeast Asia in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to monitor it. I mean, if it looks like that's probably not a good idea, then I won't go and I won't make my uh, younger uh, employees go uh, either. Sure. So just use common sense. And, you know, there may be uh, elderly, uh, immune compromised, pregnant. I mean, just really take all that stuff into consideration when, you know, making these uh, decisions. Because, uh, and again, I'll ask, leave it to Dr. Phil to tell us, but I believe more people die in the United States from the seasonal flu than this. Um, and that's, you know, so let's keep that in mind, you know, as well. Well, yeah, I think that's important. And, and Dr. Phil, if you could uh, put it in context, uh, we've, we've talked about uh, this deadly virus around the world and people may be running around at uh, Home Depot now looking for masks. But uh, maybe you can reassure people that here in Nashville, Tennessee and around the United States, we're, uh, uh, I don't know what the numbers are, rel- the, the probabilities are, but uh, we're we're pretty safe, and this this conversation is probably not cause for a major freakout. No, I don't think so. And I, I would actually just echo what John said, which is I think the most important people can arm themselves with now is uh, is knowledge and and from reliable sources. I think the source of a lot of fear and panic is. Um, unfortunately, people that you know are not specialists in this area that are providing insights or commentary, and really, unfortunately, um, magnifying a lot of that fear. Um, you know, I think CDC and the World Health Organization, you know, still remain very optimistic that that we can try to contain this virus from truly becoming a pandemic. Um, you know, we don't have a crystal ball, and and I think that's where you're seeing a lot of transparent and frequent communication from these folks. And you know, as things change, if they do, then we'll keep them updated and, and tell folks what to do. But right now, the most important things they can do is cover their cough and wash their hands and get their flu shot. And if they're sick with anything, not go to work or school to protect their communities and families. Um, and then, you know, stay stay in touch and stay in tune and, and we'll which keep is them updated. A, which is a good advice uh, year round. Absolutely. Absolutely. With, with or without this going on around the world. Well, this is the uh, Global Tennessee Podcast. We've uh, had a great conversation today with uh, Dr. Mary Margaret Phil, a medical epidemiologist from the Tennessee Department of Health, and John Scanapieco. He's uh, with the uh, 
Baker Donaldson uh, Law Firm here in Nashville, chair of the global business team, uh, specialist in China, and we've had a great conversation about the coronavirus, uh, what's going on around the world, and the implications here in uh, Tennessee. Uh, this is uh, the Global Tennessee Podcast. I'm Pat Ryan. Thanks for being with us today. Please take a look at our website, tnwac.org, for information to become a member or to make a donation. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan educational organization, and we do the podcast. We do community uh, events, bringing in speakers, and we also work with uh, young people to help them be more aware of what's going on in the world. So we hope you enjoyed the podcast, and you can find us on soundcloud.com slash TNWAC or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks, and uh, we'll be back uh, with another podcast in about a week. But uh, sign up, uh, and you'll get a podcast delivered to your iPhone or wherever you listen to your podcast. Thanks again. That's it. Bye-bye. This has been Global Tennessee from the World Affairs Council in cooperation with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The executive producer of Global Tennessee is Patrick Ryan, senior producer Logan Monday, technical advisor Bill Ryan, and the voice of Global Tennessee as well as the Penn Jones Conspiracy, I'm Benjamin Olson. Visit tnwac.org podcast for more information.